Good, good morning, everyone. Uh, <clears throat> you know, um, after inspiring sessions like we've had, uh, especially this morning, and uh, after all that inspiration, we have to come to a professionalism session. It feels like having fun outside at school and then immediately being called to a principal's office. Um, however, we, we hope that you're going to change that feeling um, in the sense that the presentation uh, today is rather different to the way that we've seen before. And um, firstly, uh, maybe I should mention that my name is Sandile. Uh, some of people might not know me. And... Um, the presenters today uh, who are going to be um, making this presentation on professionalism in a different way, or in a different, giving a different twist to it, is uh, Kari Canal, uh, who is the director at uh, Deloitte um, in consulting and has been in consulting for, for over 10 years. And she's got with uh, uh, along here uh, uh, a team of fellow actuaries at Deloitte who are going to be participating in the presentation. The presentation is more uh, of a continuation of the theme of professionalism, of the things that they don't teach you at school uh, or at varsity that you come to learn um, as you grow into the, into the profession. So they'll be giving us a glimpse uh, into a week in the life of a consulting actuary and how you come into contact with some of these issues that were mentioned uh, in yesterday's uh, professionalism um, uh, session. Um, we will also, given uh, the availability of time, we will also show you additional video case studies from the Institute and um, Faculty of Actuaries, which uh, will be complementing the presentation that you will see, just also just highlighting the the issues that we come across in our daily lives as, uh, as actuaries. Um, we hope that you do find value in the presentation, and if you feel that you didn't really get much value out of it, we challenge you not to count this towards your professionalism hours, uh, but we do hope that uh, uh, you will find a lot of value. I always say that in whatever presentation or, or, or lecture or whatever, if there's one thing that I learned out of it, it's something that, well, that presentation has been of value, and that's what we hope uh, will be the case with you. Without wasting much of your time, I'm going to ask Karika uh, and, and team to take us through the five days of the consulting, actually. But maybe before I do that, uh, apparently there are cards that were issued out to, to the audience. If you don't have the card, please just raise your hand and, the, and, and then the, the cards will be distributed to you. It's going to come, it's going to be used during the course of the presentation. Karike? Thanks. Thanks, Andile. Okay. Please just keep your hands raised. If you don't have cards, they'll, they'll bring it to you.
Welcome everyone, and thank you for joining us this morning. In the next 30 minutes or so, we hope to share with you a sneak peek into a week in the life of a consulting actuary. We will be presenting various scenarios as examples of some professional challenges a consulting actuary face on a day-to-day -day basis. We'll be presenting it from the viewpoint of a consulting actuary, but the principles are equally applicable to any practicing actuary. We will be presenting five scenes or days, and after each day, you will get an opportunity to tell us what course of action you would take. Now, we have designed our presentation on the assumption that we would have live polling or voting, but unfortunately, technology has let us down. So we have gone the manual route. Um, you all, hopefully, by now have cards, so we will be voting by simply raising um, the card, the color-coded card, for, to cast your vote. Now, unfortunately, I don't have the same processing power as my PC, so you will only get back approximate results. Also, uh, my colleagues think I can multitask, which is certainly not the case, so please bear with me as I scan the audience just to get a feel of, of what, what the votes are. Now, the purpose of our presentation is not to provide a model answer, but rather to give various solutions um, and let you decide what the appropriate answer is. We will have some time at the end to comment, so please take notes during each of the scenes of anything that you would like to share. Although we have drawn from real life experience, the characters and scenarios are fictional. Any resemblances to actual people or situations are purely coincidental. Also, for, for entertainment value, we have kept the role-playing light-hearted. Also, at times, we will be poking fun and teasing. Please don't take it personally. Although we are presenting this in a humorous way, we are by no means underplaying the seriousness or the complexity of some of these underlying situations. I'm going to introduce our cast. Um, the actors today will be Nicola and Christian. They will be playing the roles of the consulting actuary. Carl, there at the end, and uh, Diewald, here behind me, um, will really be testing their acting skills as they'll be playing different characters in each scene. Let's get started. On Monday, a very relaxed Chris, played by Diewald, um, is a manager at an insurance company. He is meeting with Nancy, played by Nicola, a consulting actuary um, who provides the statutory actuary services to Chris's insurance company. They are busy, busy discussing the embedded value assumptions, but there seems to be some disagreement as to what the expense assumptions should be. Let's see what happens. Aloha, Nancy. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. I'm going to tell you, I'm really excited. I'm on my way to the airport, taking the extended family to the Maldives. My treat, by the way. Wow, so business is good, I see. Are you expecting some hefty performance bonuses, possibly linked to the embedded value results? <laughs> well, now, Nancy, let's not get into the detail too much. But speaking of those EV results, we really need to sign off on the assumptions. Uh, pretty standard, nothing too spectacular. I was just thinking about dropping the per-policy expense assumptions a little bit. Yes, Chris, about the expense assumptions, 
I really would have thought that they would increase rather given inflation and the declining book of business. Mm, you might well have a point, and it surprised me as well. But I asked the guys back at the office uh, to do a detailed expense investigation. I spoke to management. Everybody seems to be on board. Turns out we've just had those loadings too high in the past. Chris, I don't want to be a pain, but I'm not sure I'm comfortable signing off on expenses just based on management's opinion without the backing information. Nancy, how long have we been friends? <laughs> Maybe, what if I promise that we'll provide double the detail next time around, and we let this one fly? Nancy, the statutory actuary, and Chris, the manager, have different views on the expense assumptions, both with merits. What should the actuary do? A, sign off on the EV basis. It can always be corrected next year. B, further investigate the expense basis through consultation with management. C, sign off on the EV basis but closely monitor expense assumptions going forward. Or D, join on the holiday in the Maldives. You have 15 seconds to cast your vote. Okay, it looks like most of you prefer option B, uh, which is for further consultation. That's very unfortunate for Chris, who will now have to go to the Maldives without signing off on his embedded value basis. And I did see around about there someone selecting D, obviously in dire need of a holiday this time of the year. On Thursday, uh, sorry, Tuesday, a client, played by Carl, who is expanding into East Africa, approaches Charlie, played by Christian, a consulting actuary, to inquire if he is able to assist with the due diligence on the acquisition of an East African target. Can Charlie help with the due diligence? Let's see what happens. <laughs> Charlie! Hi, how are you? Good, thanks, and you, man? How's it going? Good, thanks, yeah. Listen, I, I really need some help with the due diligence. Do you guys have some capacity? Sure, who's the target? So, my company's looking into buying a stake in Safari Insurance Company. Heard of them? Yes, I think so. I think we've actually done some work for them in the past. Maybe we can even leverage off it. Ah, well, yeah, that could come in handy. Um, I've heard their statue actually is quite a tough cookie will probably put uh, quite a competitive liability value uh, on the table. So you need to bring your A-team. Yeah, look, <laughs> I actually think I know who the statutory actually is. There's a new one. Um, do you mind if I just quickly call my colleague? I just want to make sure who it is. Of course. We always, always have time for this. Sorry. Hi, Nancy. Listen, has your appointment to become the new statutory actuary of Safari Insurance been approved? Oh, it has. Congratulations, that's great news. Well, for you anyway.
the client has requested that a due diligence be done on a company for which the consultancy already acts as the statutory actuary. What should the actuary do? A, proceed, but exclude any team members with knowledge of the target. B, do nothing and hope nobody finds out. C, set up Chinese walls and proceed with approval from the client and target. Or D, walk away from the potential work to avoid any conflicts. You have 15 seconds to vote. Thank you. I could only see C's and D's, and I'm guessing about split halfway. I couldn't see majority either way, which is interesting. It just shows that it's not always clear-cut what the most professional decision is. Okay, let's move on. On Wednesday, Mr. Brown, who is a pricing actuary, is meeting with Nancy, the statutory actuary who is about to sign off on the actuarial soundness of the premium rates of a new product to be launched soon. However, everything is not as simple as it seems, and there is some tension between the two. Let's see what happens. Let's mount up. Hi, Mr. Brown. How are you keeping? Yeah, Nancy, I'm fine. I just don't know why we need to have this uh, conversation in person. Thanks for meeting me. I just had a few concerns I thought we could talk through. Yes, I'm developing this new product. You just need to sign off in terms of the long-term insurance tax section 46. So apparently you just need to sign off on the actuarial soundness. Correct, And yes. it's my job to develop a product that is actually sellable, is that correct? Yes. And in doing so, try to make a little bit of profit for my company while we need to pay your exorbitant consultancy fees, right? Well, hold on a second. So let's just put all the facts on the table, right? So I've got a product. I can sell it at a 50% profit margin. The premiums are actually sound, whatever that means. Why do we need to have this conversation again? Let's not get ahead of ourselves here, Mr. Brown. Clearly, actual soundness is not the concern. But I do have some worries about what the high profit margins mean in terms of treating customers fairly. Wow, Ms. Act, I didn't know your services extended to saving the world. <laughs> Maybe, maybe for now we'll just focus on company solvency, so why don't you just sign off the letter and let's be done with this. The statutory actuary is required to sign off on the actuarial soundness of the premium. However, there seems to be some evidence that the new product may not meet the principles of treating customers fairly. What should the actuary do? A, resign as its statutory actuary and buy a ranch. B, sign off on the product, but include a comment on the TCF principles in the sign-off letter. C, the product is actuarially sound, so proceed with sign-off. Or D, insist on further consultation with the treating customers fairly committee. You have 15 seconds to vote.
Okay, so several Ds in the audience, um, someone who prefers or some of the audience preferring further consultation. There are also several Bs, maybe the pricing actuaries in the audience. Um, I didn't see anyone desperate enough for a holiday to be willing to buy a ranch. So I think D mostly closely followed by B. Let's move on. On Thursday, the new project manager of Rush Hour Insurance approaches Charlie, the statutory actuary, to inquire about the progress with the actuarial valuation report. The new project manager is anxious to get everything ready for the board meeting the next week. However, there are some complications. Let's see what happens. Hi, excuse me. Can I help you? Hi. Valuation. Charlie. Yes. Where is my valuation report? I need it for next week's board meeting. Sorry, just from where are you? Uh, uh, some some insurance company. I mean, I just need that. Oh, Rush Hour. They, oh, yes, are you yes. from Rush Hour? Uh, yes, yes. Okay, look, we're almost done with it. Don't worry about it. We're almost done with the valuation. We're actually just waiting for one last piece of data. And unfortunately, it's on your main line of business, the personal accident line. I'm very hesitant to give the board any numbers without having sight of the full data set. I, I know about the data issues, but the board's not going to accept that as a valid excuse. I need the results. I understand, but I just can't do a full valuation without the data. Charlie, Charlie, you, you need to help me out here. This is my first big meeting. I need to make an impression. I mean, you're an actuary, right? The company's been doing well. The results are looking good. I mean, can't you do some mathematics? You approximate something. I don't know. The data is not ready, but the board meeting is looming. What should the actuary do? A, keep last year's number unchanged. B, perform an approximate calculation and include a caveat in the report. C, tell them no data, no report. Or D, visit a psychic. You have 15 seconds to vote. Thanks, everyone. I think by far B, um, with several C's as well. Unfortunately, no data, no report will not help the poor project manager who's already very anxious, but I think the majority voted B, which is to perform an approximate calculation. Finally, it's Friday, but the weekend is not as close as it seems. Nancy the head of the actuarial control function, is facilitating a meeting with the new chief risk officer, played by Diewald, and the CEO, played by Carl. The new CRO is busy setting the risk appetite limits. He needs the actuaries and the CEO's buy-in before he can present it to the board. But there seems to be some differing opinions as to what the target level of capital should be. Let's see what happens. Okay. 
Hi there. I'm here for that meeting about risk appetite limits with the CEO. Hi, Zach. I'm the statutory actuary. The CEO is already inside. Follow me. Oh, wait, wait. Uh, yeah, I just uh, need to uh, sort out some uh, annoying little matter. All right, I'll chat to you later. Oh, hi, Cliff. It's you. Hello. <laughs> A nice helmet. Well, thank you, Cliff. You know my policy. Better safe than sorry. Right, let's get the show on the road. The reason we're here today is to discuss the optimal level of capital. And there seem to be some conflicting ideas. Yes, I'll start. I think for the protection of our policyholders and this company as a whole, we should target a 95% level of confidence. That is a 1.5 times cover ratio above our regulatory capital requirement. Hold on, let me get this straight. 1.5. So, so what you're saying is, so you need a... You, you want to hold capital for a some theoretical one in 20 year scenario on top of the theoretical one in 200 year scenario that the regulator specified. <laughs> Sounds to me like we're capitalizing for the zombie apocalypse. Okay, okay. But I think what our chief risk officer no, 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 is trying no, to say. No, 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 I, I need to make a point here. I think the, the, the people missing out here or losing out here are the shareholders. Everybody forgets about the shareholders. They're really suffering under this new regime. Have a point. Shareholders, shareholders, shareholders. What about the policyholders? No, we, we've, done, we've done a lot of work and we've identified several important investment opportunities that we need to take over the next few years to give our shareholders the rightful returns they deserve. 1.5 we can't do. 1.2 and no more. What do you say, Ms. Stadak? The CEO prefers a lower target cover ratio, which allows for the remaining capital to be used for other ventures. The CRO prefers a higher target ratio. What should the actuary do? A. Insist on further investigation into the optimal level of capital. B. Side with the CRO and motivate the higher ratio. C. Side with the CEO and motivate the lower ratio. Or D. Go and have a coffee while the two chiefs slug it out. You have 15 seconds to vote. Okay, majority A, um, insisting on further investigations. Then we had a few C's, um, siding with the, the CEO, and then actually a few D's as well. And don't worry, the coffee break is close. We um, won't take too much, um, much more of your time. So in conclusion, we have looked at a number of scenarios where actuaries are faced with professional challenges, consulting actuaries specifically, professional challenges in our daily lives. Choosing the correct course of action is not always clear cut. Take for example the last scenario, the risk appetite um, limits. Both the CRO and the CEO had valid points, but, but of the opposite side of the coin. 
At other times, the best course of action um, available may require you as the statutory actuary to make a difficult or unpopular decision. Take, for example, the new product sign-off, where the sign-off of the premium rates may, may be delayed because further consultation is needed. Throughout all five scenarios, one of the better, if not the best option, was for further consultation. Be it with other actuarial professionals or with other stakeholders, through consultation, we can make better decisions. I think that fits in nicely with what Peter Doyle said yesterday, where he commented about how he learned not just from actuaries, but also from people outside of the actuarial profession. We are committed to maintaining a profession with high standards of integrity and ethics. And although we have presented this in a funny manner, we are fully aware of the seriousness and complexity of the underlying situations. We hope you enjoyed it, but most of all, we hope we made you think about how you are making professional decisions. And don't worry, we won't be quitting our day jobs. We are better actuaries than actors. Thank you. Well, I did tell you, we have a session with a difference. Um, and it also just does show how much talent we have in the actuarial profession. Yeah. Um, I'll open the, the floor for comments or any questions um, on the issues that got raised through the, the presentations here. And also maybe even a comment on how the responses to the various challenges came through um, as you were asked uh, to vote. So we have a bit of time, so uh, don't shy away, just uh, raise the issues. Okay, any openers? <laughs> I hope this has nothing to do with last night. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Any, any, any openers? Otherwise, Karik, you would like to add some more? Okay. Really, people, you were here. Any comments? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I see. Yes, there is one who's ready to bail the cat. Yeah. Um, All right. uh, good morning. I just think the scenarios that was put in front of us today, in each of these scenarios there was a bit of a cop-out answer, because to go for more consultation, eventually come back to the same table with the same issue, even if you had more consultation. And then the issue isn't you can't go then even for more consultation. So I just want to stress it is, it is in, in some cases, it is very difficult. And as you were saying, then you have to put your... Uh, uh, your conviction into the decision and side with one party or the other. Because um, there's not many times they know cop out to go for more consultations. Yes. That's a very similar comment. You never have enough time. You never have enough data. Eventually you have to commit yourself to a deadline and to be believable you've got to meet that deadline. Whatever. Uh, that, you know, that's my experience anyway. 
Thank you very much. Any other taker? Yeah. I think I do agree with the comment that you, you, you never have enough time um, to be able to, to do the, the utmost best that you believe you can do. Uh, there's so many uh, constraints, the availability of the data, the availability of the information, or the time constraints that are imposed um, by your client. Um, and I think you'll also find it very difficult to go back to the client to say, um, no data, then no report. Um, you probably might feel that very quickly when you send an invoice to the client. Um, so, and also from a professional point of view, I think you, you, you've got to do something with a limited amount of data, but just make it very clear what your conclusions are based on. I think Mickey yeah. has a... Um, communication is an issue I'd like yeah. to raise. Um, as Linda said, this scenario is going to happen over and over again. Yeah and eventually you have to communicate the uncertainty. Now, since the last 20 years, all the actuaries have been through communication courses. So we do have some skills in knowing how to communicate, but the other, the other half is the um, desire to communicate and mm. the ability to make time in the, in the urgency of the moment to do the communication. Uh, there's a story uh, I experienced, uh, I sometimes get involved with the external examining at, at UCT of the um, communications courses. And it just happened the, the one year I went to external examine their communications course and this particular student did a fantastic job uh, with his uh, presentation. And it just happened the next day I went to one of their lunchtime lectures and the same student was reporting back on his master's research. And it was a terrible job of communication. And when I asked him afterwards why the difference, he said, no, no, yesterday was communication. Today was the master's research. <laughs> uh, thanks, Mickey. Uh, let's give, yeah, we'll give you a chance again. I'll try and project. Um, what it is, is communication, yes. Communication starts with listening. Thank you. Ah, we've got another taker here. Thank you. Uh, first of all, I think I just want to say uh, you made it very interesting, and I wondered if there was something similar to this in the professionalism course, just after what was spoken about yesterday. I think students could benefit from this. So, being in academia and lecturing, it's very difficult to teach professionalism to undergraduate students. But certainly when I, when I did the professionalism course, something like this wasn't included, but I think play acting, can, they can really benefit from something like that. Yeah. Good. Uh, luckily, Paul Lewis is sitting right in front of you. <laughs> yeah. We don't do play acting per se, although we do sometimes put a student on the spot and say, well, please come and explain to me as your manager why you want to go above my head and, and tell me that I'm doing something wrong to my boss. So we do do things like that which work quite well. But where this comes out is a lot of the guest presenters come in and they have really, really good case studies about real life stuff, like want to introduce a new drug which is very expensive and everyone else is pay for it. So I think we are bringing quite a lot of this in. We don't have any sexy hats in our session there. <laughs> <laughs>
Thanks, Paul. And that just reminds me, after Paul has spoken, that uh, there, there was a mistake in the programs where I think Paul was included in this session. So he didn't bunk this session out. That was a mistake, um, and that's why he's not uh, on the podium. Thank you, Paul. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. I'm Tasias. I'm going to refer to the last episode we saw on the Friday one between the CRO and the CEO. I mean, we're not really trained to be marriage counselors, and you can see <laughs> those guys have deep issues between themselves, <laughs> and any actuary could have signed off the 1.5 and not get into trouble. Another one could have signed off the 1.2, and they're all fine, depending on which way you want to look at. I mean, you could try and negotiate for the middle, but then the thing is, if you end up siding with one, you might end up losing the client too and having problems with your boss too. So how do you really end up addressing such kind of issues? Because mm -hmm. uh, I think they are beyond, beyond us as actuaries. They are internal issues. Thank you. And I, I think that's why um, we saw several people actually selecting to go to coffee and let the two chiefs slack it out. Maybe sometimes that is the best option. Yeah. I think on the marriage, marriage counselling side, um, you saw how much talent you've got um, in the actual profession. Maybe we do have marriage counsellors as well. Sorry, yeah. yeah. Sorry, so I, th I think that's also part of the reason why we selected this scenario was that it's not really something within the scope of currently that, that actuaries either have to do one or the other. But I think it highlights a, a scenario that does occur these days, um, given the, the tension that potentially exists between the CEO and the, and the CRO. And while we intentionally didn't want to give any sort of specific answers, I do think more information in this sense often does help. So it's either one or the other party not understanding the other one's viewpoint. Mm. Um, so potentially the idea with the, the one solution where we said go back and do further work, it's often the CEO that, that doesn't quite grasp what the CRO has come up with, the new risk management system that they've now put in place and have been doing a lot of work, they, they just, it, they, it hasn't been communicated clearly enough to them. Okay. Oh, there's another hand outside. Um, just on the Friday scenario as well, I do think that we the we use the, the, the consultant actually can add a lot of value to that process is to interpret and to, because of your knowledge of the underlying implications of various scenarios that's on the table, to highlight them and to, and, and, and to communicate the implications to both parties of each other's viewpoint. So, in, 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 so your function in, in that kind of discussion would be to, so that everybody is clear on what the implications are as f with, with all your knowledge that you can put on the table of the various decisions and then let them again come to a decision. I think from the one side, as long as it's more than the, your requirement is more than the statutory minimum, that's at least you can't sign of anything less than that. But above that, th there's implications for various scenarios and, and, and then you must just assist the discussion and make it clear that everybody understands, understands them. I think that's your role. Yeah, yeah. So I totally agree with that, and that's what we try to to establish in that scenario is for the for the statutory actually not to play, take an extremely strong view to one or the other side, but play, play more the facilitation role uh, is another option. And and I totally agree from a consulting actually point of view, you're probably even in a better position to play that play that facilitation role um, to get both sides of the of the coin. Okay. 
we'll take one last question. Uh, that's not stopping anyone, please. One last question or comment, I should say. Okay. Uh, thank you to the Deloitte team for giving us such an entertaining presentation. Um, I do just ask that for future things we spend more time going through some of the analysis, some of the thinking, not just counting the votes and going, well, some of you said C, some of you said D. Um, and it's clear from the Q&A that people want to engage with the material, and it's clear from the Q&A that you guys have got good answers and good analysis and good thinking. But I would ask that you bring that forward more in the prepared material for next time. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I think this was quite experimental, um, but we'll take note of that. Thank you. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, I did say at the beginning that um, we will complement this session with a couple of videos from the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries. Um, these, the, the Institute and, uh, and Faculty of Actuaries, they have material uh, which is available on their website for, 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 for members of the Institute. Um, to Basically, they've got a toolkit um, for, for, for actuaries so that, uh, that you can use to, to keep yourself update, uh, up to date with the issues that arise uh, in the business that we do. And um, that also just gets you to think about um, how complicated or complex some situations are um, that um, you likely to come across and then get you to think on, on what you could do uh, to be able to come out of that particular situation. Um, the, we've asked the, the institute and the faculty to give us access to a couple of those videos so as to give you a flavor. And if you are a member of the institute and faculty, you can actually go in there if you haven't um, on their website. It's publicly available material for members. And, um, and keep yourself up to date. It's part of the professionalism um, uh, training uh, for members of the institute. And hopefully we will have, um, we'll be able over time to, to, to get sort of um, more access for, for, for ASA members uh, to, to that material. One um, of the areas that they look at in, the, in that toolkit is conflicts of interest, where and how they arise, and how um, the actuaries come across that in, the, in their daily work. In fact, uh, I'm just quoting here from one of the, of the videos where they say uh, conflict, conflicts of interest, they do matter and they, and they can arise at any time. And it's our professional responsibility to ensure that they are identified and acted upon appropriately in the interest of both the actuary, the actuary's firm, the firm's client, clients, and all other stakeholders. Okay. And the the actuarial profession, uh, both in the UK and here, do have some guidelines for members of the profession on how to, to manage or handle situations of conflict or, uh, of interest. Um, in fact, the guidelines 
laid out in the, in the code um, run something like this, that you've got to identify the potential conflicts um, uh, correctly and uh, assess whether that conflict is such as to prevent you from acting or is capable of being reconciled and careful management and, and planning. And then they go on to say that if the conflict is, is capable of being reconciled, then they give you some ideas of how to, to, to proceed from there, identifying the steps which will require to be put in place uh, in order to manage the potential conflicts. And uh, the early disclosures that you will have to make of the potential conflicts to the clients um, uh, concerned and to come to an agreement of appropriately worded um, con uh, management of the, of the conflict of interest. Okay. So the three case studies that um, we're planning to show, technology allowing, um, cover the area of conflict, con conflict of interest and also, I think, showcase the acting skills uh, of the actuarial profession. Let's show the first video. Knock, knock. Oh, I hate that. Yeah, I know you do. Listen, uh, I've got to talk to you about something. Yeah? We just had some paperwork through from a clay path finance. It's a oh. compensation settlement from Mr. Francis. Brilliant. I'll get on to the guy straight away. Tell you what, that was really quick. I love it when you get a smooth ride, don't you? That's what I need to talk to you about. Uh-oh. Sounds ominous. Uh, what's the compensation settlement for, exactly? It was a claim for mis-selling. Insurance? No. Pensions, actually. Why? Tony, did you make all the appropriate checks before you made the agreement? Of course I did. I'm talking about conflict of interests. Jeff, spit it out. What's going on? Claypath Finance received actuarial advice on their approach to mis-selling compensation. From? Marcus Pidgeley. Marcus Pidgeley? What? Marcus Pidgeley from this office, Marcus Pidgeley? Do you know another Marcus Pidgeley? Oh, Jeff. Do you know what? I was really, really busy around about that time. With what thing after another sort of going on, I, I probably forgot to put the proper checks in. What am I going to do? Well, that's the question, mate. What are you going to do? Okay, that's the, the first case study. It's actually titled Looking After Your Own. Um, Tony and Jeff, in this case, are both actuaries working in the same office, as we've seen, and the dilemma here is just what should you do when an error has been spotted that relates to your trusted colleague and is compounded by another colleague's failure to impose adequate controls. Okay, that's the situation that is coming out here. Um, maybe I'll do the same and just throw it to the, to the floor for about three minutes. Just a comment on what you think should be happening in there. Um, who are the affected parties in this scenario? And if you were, if you were Jeff, the guy sitting down, what, uh, the, the one talking, if you are Jeff, what would you consider doing next? And if you are Tony, should you take any further action? And if so, what action would you take? Is there anyone else that you think in the office that needs to be involved in this situation? Okay. Those are just some of the questions that we could throw at you. Okay. Any takers? 
within the next three minutes. I think last night was lekker. Okay, I can see that in the face of everyone. Any takers? Okay, I think maybe we'll move on to, 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 to the next um, case study. This one is titled um, Mom's the Word. Um, still along the same theme of uh, conflicts of interest and how they arise. Can we play the second one, please? Hello, Suzanne Chambers speaking. Hello, Suzanne, it's Ken Montgomery here. Oh, hello, Mr. Montgomery. How are things going down at Octavian? Swimmingly, thank you, Suzanne. Actually, that's why I wanted to speak to you. Oh? Am I right in thinking that as scheme actuary of the Octavian Pension Fund, that you offer advice and whatever to me and the trustees? Well, you're the employer of the scheme, Mr Montgomery, so of course I'm here to give you any advice you need. How can I help? No, that's not what I mean. I know you offer me advice, like you did the other day with that matter we discussed, remember? Yes. Well, I just wondered, do you offer advice and support like that to the trustees too? I do give advice to them, yes. Obviously, I can't be too specific, though. And I wouldn't want you to be. Uh, confidentiality is very important. No one relies on trust like the trustees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The advice you gave me was really great and uh, actually it's helped me make a decision, finally. I know it affects the trustees, but you won't tell them, will you? After all, they're not the ones paying your fees now, are they? I won't say anything, Mr Montgomery. Yes, Suzanne here is a scheme actuary working on behalf of uh, both the trustees and the employer who happens to be Ken in this uh, scenario. And the dilemma here is how should you react when you're asked not to discuss a particular matter with an interested second party? And I think that's a very good example of, of a conflict of interest. The questions that arise or that maybe you might need to, 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 to ask um, yourself um, would include, not limited to, um, should Suzanne tell anyone about Mark's uh, approach? And if so, who should she talk to? And what could she have done differently? Anyone who found themselves in this situation can maybe make a comment and share your experience. Yeah, yeah. I can see the, the audience is still thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think the, 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 the important thing as uh, I did mention, is it's not that complicated in terms of um, what you come across or what happens. It's just that it's not simple. 
to, to sometimes to identify any causes of, the type of cause of action that you, you need to make, especially because we hardly ever get trained uh, to be able to, to do that. I'll show you the last case study, which is, in this case, they title it Careless Whispers. Um, it's not set in the pensions scene as we've seen the, the other cases. Uh, this is set in the scene in the uh, context of, of a life office. Can we see the last video, please? So, what did you want to talk to me about? Well, our client, Scottish Trust Life, are looking to purchase a small but well-known specialist life insurance company. Now, this is totally unsolicited, Dale, but the client's hoping that a, a nice, friendly approach will do the trick. Okay, so this small but well-known specialist life insurance company, do they go by any other name? They do. Prosper and Protect. Okay. It's Prosper and Protect. Getting any interest elsewhere? We don't think so, and Scottish Trust Life are fairly certain that they're the only ones interested in purchasing it. And has Prosper and Protect indicated a willingness to sell at all? No, they've got no idea they're a target. Do you know that name rings a bell? Prosper and Protect? Yes, aren't those the guys that did that telly ad? You know, the one with the dancing chickens the trombone, and that good-looking actor. John Barrowman? Uh, no, not John Barrowman. No, Mark something. Mark Moore, that's it. Mark who? Mark Moore, the guy with the teeth. Oh, Mark Moore. I can't stand him. Me neither. My wife loves him, though. Oh. <laughs> Speak of the devil. Do you mind? Not at all. You stay here, I'll get the coffees. Morning, ladies. Oh, hello, Gavin. Morning, Gav. So I think it's going to be another late one tonight. Knackered as well. Still, at least I can console myself with some of the perks that might come from it. Right? What do you mean? Well, I'm doing some audit stuff for regional insurance, and they're just about to put in an unsolicited purchase bid on another company. Another company? Yeah. Can't really say any more, you know. Oh. Yeah, but what about this perk you were telling me about? Just between you and me, yeah. this particular company, the one that my client's trying to buy, yeah. uses a very attractive actor to advertise his products. Mm. Jim Broadbent? No, not Jim Broadbent. Mm. The one on the advert with the chickens. You know, the one with the teeth. <gasps> oh, Mark Moore! Mmm, yum. <laughs> Well, in this scenario, Gavin and Dale, their colleagues, as we've seen, working in a life assurance uh, company. Uh, um, in fact, they are consultants, uh, actuaries, to a large financial services company. Tracy and Fiona, the ladies by the coffee machine, they are fellow actuaries waiting in line to get their coffee, and everybody is chatting about work. And the dilemma here is, you overhear a conversation or you over, and you overhear information which might be vital to your case. You don't know for sure, but you cannot disregard it. What do you do? Okay. 
So the questions that uh, come up, and like I said, among others, the gossiping actuaries, have they done anything wrong? Particularly given that uh, she's not she has not mentioned the company by name. Would you consider approaching the gossiping actuary and telling them you have overheard the conversation and that you might have to tell your client? And in fact, should you inform your client How might you approach discussing this matter with your client if you choose to inform them of the gossip that uh, happened in your office? Has your ability to provide objective advice to your client been compromised by having heard or overheard that conversation? Who in your office um, would you talk to about, about this scenario? And would your, your opinion change if the gossipers were from another organization and you heard this conversation happen at a public coffee shop or at a pub? <laughs> yeah. any, any comments uh, on this? Come on, guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, in, 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 my, in my view, um, I, I think more often than not, you, you find yourself in, in, in these situations. And if you haven't sort of experienced that and been exposed to it, it always helps to go and talk to somebody who, who might have likely gone through that kind of experience. They might not necessarily be in your office, but they might be external to your office, and they may be actuaries or they may not be um, <coughs> actuaries. But at least, as actuaries, members of ASA, we at least have got the resources within the organization uh, that somebody somewhere might be able to give you uh, appropriate guidance as to how to handle that uh, particular situation. It's simple situations, as we have seen here, um, that can arise. And lying in there could be the big challenge of how do you manage the conflict of interest. Your con your, your, the inter conflict of your interests uh, against those of your client. Or it could be situations where it's it's, 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 it's your client, it's, it's two of your clients, as we saw in the one case, where uh, he was a consulting actuary to both the trustees and the employer. Now, the challenge then becomes that of managing that uh, conflict. And um, if, as I said, you find yourself in that situation and you don't feel comfortable you can handle it, it's always wise to, to talk to somebody who likely has um, that uh, experience. Um, if there aren't any takers or, or, or comments that we can get out of um, um, out of these cases, I think we will then uh, close. We'll be a couple of minutes early, and I'll close by just making the comment again um, 
that I, uh, I took from one of these case studies about conflicts of interest, that they do matter and can arise at any time, and uh, we just need to identify them correctly and act upon those conflicts appropriately in your personal interest, well, in, your, in the interest of you as the actuary, the interest of your firm, of your clients, and any of the other stakeholders that are involved. There is guidance available um, in the form of the Code of Professional Conduct by, uh, by ASA and uh, the Actuaries Code of the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries. Um, sometimes it's, it's the kind of reading that you don't really want to um, go through, but sometimes it does make very good uh, bedside reading. And I did indicate that we do have uh, video cases um, uh, from the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries. Um, and one hopes from today's uh, presentation here that we are going to have more such local case studies, hopefully also uh, converted to, uh, for digital access so that they can be available for the membership at, lar at large and can also be utilized uh, for education purposes at, uh, at universities. Now, having said that, I think I should um, make a couple of thank yous here uh, for the presentations. Uh, I must thank uh, Karike and her team for uh, showcasing the, the acting skills, uh, or should I say just making the presentation of very serious matters in a very light-hearted manner. And uh, yes, uh, hopefully you'll be our first producers of these case studies for, 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 for South Africa. And then also in absentia, um, well, I'm sure some members here are members of the IO Institute and, uh, Institute and uh, Faculty of Actuaries uh, who gave us access to, to their material and uh, that we're quite grateful that uh, we were able to, to show that. This is just a tip of the iceberg. They've got a lot more uh, in their toolbox that we can use uh, to, to, to upgrade, shall I say, to develop our skills in managing these difficult issues. If there isn't any questions, I think coffee is going to be here. Um, well, coffee should be outside and uh, um, enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you.